Africa, I think Ed Camp is great. I actually did uh, Ed Camp in Dubai uh, in 2012. So Ed Camps are wonderful, um, and I, I, I enjoy them. I think they're the, one of the best think tanks for us educators that don't have um, a, a structured PD program. That is the voice of Kay Stokes, presenting at the Global Education Conference in November. Kay refers to EdCamps as think tanks. This session of Journeys in Podcasting explores EdCamp as an alternative professional development model for teachers, the psychological mechanics of why teachers are motivated to dedicate Saturdays at an unconference where the day begins with no plan, what purpose drives teachers to autonomously build their own mastery, Dan Pink author of A Whole New Mind and Drive may have the answer. In fact, money is a motivator um, at work, but in a slightly strange way. If you don't pay people enough, they won't be motivated. What's curious about, there's another paradox here, which is that the best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. Pay people enough so that they're not thinking about money and they're thinking about the work. Now, once you do that, it turns out there are three factors that the science shows lead to better performance, um, not to mention personal satisfaction. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy is our desire to be self-directed, to direct our own lives. Now, in many ways, traditional notions of management run afoul of that. Management is great if you want compliance, but if you want engagement, which is what we want in the workforce today as people are doing more complicated, sophisticated things, self-direction is better. Right, let's talk about mastery. Mastery is our urge to get better at stuff. We like to get better at stuff. This is why people play musical instruments on the weekend. You've got all these people who are acting in ways that seem irrational economically. They play musical instruments on weekends. Why? It's not going to get them a mate. It's not going to make them any money. Why are they doing it? Because it's fun. Because you get better at it, and that's satisfying. Go back in time a little bit. Imagine, I imagine this if I went to my first economics professor, a woman named Mary Alice Shulman. And I went to her in 1983 and said, Professor Shulman, can I talk to you after class for a moment? Yeah. Just, I got this inkling. I got this idea for a business model. I just want to run it past you. Here's how it would work. You get a bunch of people around the world who are doing highly skilled work, but they're willing to do it for free and volunteer their time, 20, sometimes 30 hours a week. Okay, she's looking at you somewhat skeptically there. Oh, but I'm, but I'm not done. And then what they create they give it away rather than sell it. It's going to be huge. <laughs> I mean, she, would have, she truly would have thought I was insane. Okay? It seemed to fly in the face of so many things. But what do you have? You have Linux powering one out of four corporate servers in Fortune 500 companies, Apache powering uh, more than the majority of web servers, uh, Wikipedia. What's going on? Why are, why are people doing this? Why are, they, why are these people, many of whom are technically sophisticated, highly skilled people who have jobs, Okay? They have jobs. They're working at jobs for pay, doing challenging, doing sophisticated techno technological work. And yet, during their limited discretionary time, they do equally, if not more, technically sophisticated work, not for their employer, but for someone else for free. That's a strange economic behavior. Economists who look into it, why are they doing this? It's overwhelmingly clear. Challenge and mastery, along with making a contribution. That's it. What you see more and more is a rise of what you might call the purpose motive, is that more and more organizations want to have some kind of transcendent purpose, partly because it makes coming to work better, partly because that's the way to get better talent. Um, 
And what we're seeing now is, in some ways, when the profit motive becomes unmoored from the purpose motive, uh, bad things happen. Bad things ethically sometimes, but also bad things just like not good stuff, like crappy products, like lame services, like uninspiring places to work. That when the profit motive is, is, is paramount or when it becomes completely unhitched from the purpose motive, it's just people don't do great things. More and more organizations are, are realizing this and, and sort of disturbing the categories between what's profit and what's, and what's purpose. And, and I think that actually heralds something interesting. And I think that the companies, that organizations that are flourishing, whether they're profit, for profit, or somewhere in between, are, are, are animated by this purpose. Well, we see, for example, that kids should voice in the classrooms, and then we send teachers to these like blanket mass teachers. They all learn about the same thing. But I think EdCamp gives you the opportunity to learn about what you might want, like what you think you like. I mean, yeah, most relevant for your content area, or somewhere because you choose to be there that you're a little, you're, you're more invested, and it's going to be more impactful. Video conferencing from Bogota to Austin is no perfect science. That was the gurgled sounds of a Google Hangout with Stephanie Serda, an amazing connector of minds. I met Stephanie at Startup Weekend, Education Austin, where I joined with Mark Danfa's team to create the Bookaround app, a collaborative book review SharePoint for primary students. Stephanie helps organize EdCamp ATX and has worked with Notosh, bringing design thinking into Austin's classrooms. At unconferences, these connectors foment collaboration, adding fuel to professional trajectories. Mike Pennington is another agent of collaboration. He and Garth Holman pioneered Global Ed with a student-created wiki, democratizing research and writing over, with over 1,600 students. Here are excerpts of two conversations, one from BLC last summer and one from a video conference at our own tech fair here at Colegio Nueva Granada in Bogota. Yeah, so I, I, I was fortunate enough to kind of be asked to take over EdCamp Cleveland a couple years ago and run that. Um, I, I guess the best advice is you really have to think about how you're preparing your teachers when they show up in the morning because people aren't used to open conversations at a conference. Uh, they're used to either sitting and getting or being the presenter. So it's very important to set that tone right away that everyone should be contributing uh, and that everyone has something to contribute. Uh, so something that always worked really, really well with my teachers is giveaways, having things to auction off, raffle off. Um, people love stuff. We also would do food. So we would find sponsors, because ed camps have to be a free thing. We would find sponsors, we would do breakfast, and we would do lunch uh, for them. So that's always a nice way to do it. It also meant that when we started our day, we were always in a school. We were in the cafeteria. So the chairs and tables were already in the round because of just the way cafeterias are. And I think people feel more comfortable being loud and talking in a cafeteria than they do in a classroom uh, or in an auditorium, per se. So we really like to use that as our commonplace so that people started conversations, would find people they didn't know yet or people they didn't know, uh, and they would follow those people to the room. We would use a Google form to collect room topics, and then we could break that down on the fly to assign it to the classrooms we had so that there was a, a general idea of what people were getting into when they went to a room. So how do they choose the topics in the Google form? Like, How do you crowdsource where the interest is? I, I would just make a random form, which I'll, I'll share over to you. I'd give a bit.ly link. So it's a nice, short, easy link for them. 
And the rule was write what you're interested in for, for education. Could be technology, assessment, anything. Uh, and then we would take, depending on how many people we had and how many rooms, because we wanted to have about 10, 15 people to a room. So if we had a large crew that year, we would use more topics during our sessions so that we would keep people small. Sometimes we wouldn't use people's topics. Sometimes we would combine topics if they looked similar. If someone says something about um, assessment with technology and someone else said Google Forms, for instance, we would combine those because they're probably going to be talking about the same thing. And at least you have two people in the room coming at it that way. So for those that don't know what EdCamp is, when what does a teacher walk out of an EdCamp with that they probably are not going to get as an experience at a normal conference? Man, I, I think if anything, you tend to only talk about one or two topics, and then you go and do it. So conferences, you sit in five, six sessions, you're extremely overwhelmed, you go home, you, you might not get that start in it uh, because it was sit and get. But if you're sitting in two, three sessions in a day and you're part of a conversation, the reality of making those things into lessons, I think, is easier for teachers. Uh, we have a lot of people that occasionally, like I said, we use the school, so we keep like the media center open. People would have a good conversation in that first session, and then they go to the media session the rest of the day and build with that person. So they had that ability just to go and work on something if they needed to. How do you see this participatory culture and education changing kind of like the whole idea of gatekeeper you know normally yeah. we had our pdl organized by the school and sure know exactly kind of what they would dish out so how, how do you think this is changing like the whole field well I, when i present when i do things student ownership is is my topic the backbone of everything that i've done as a teacher and i think teacher ownership of pd is where we're at right now so ed camps empower teachers to have that choice to, uh, they call it voting with your feet if you don't like what's going on in the room you leave and no one's offended and you pick something else up. I think eventually we're going to see that spread to the kids. So that it, even if it's not students coming to an ed camp, it's teachers conducting class like an ed camp. So I taught world history and let's say we're starting our unit on the Renaissance. Maybe I got five kids that love art and six kids that love music. Go to different sides of the room, go to different classrooms, start talking about those things and how they relate bring that back and then we can unpack a standard that you're talking about or think of a project to learn more about that so I think anything we can do to kind of um, I'm trying to think another cliche democratize PD if you will um, it's gonna just help the kids at the end of the day you mentioned Google yeah how does Google fit into this day does it fit into this picture of the ed camp the participatory culture the crowdsourcing of all this content um, yeah I, I think so. Google has had an amazing ability to create a platform that is centered around collaboration and easy collaboration. It's not hard. I, I have second graders in Google Classroom that understand it and can post work and get work from their teachers. Um, I think it's great, like I said, to see the collaboration piece. It, it gives you that uh, asynchronous work ethic. doesn't matter where you are, when you are. I taught seventh grade, I was a track coach, my kids would sit on the bus on their cell phone and write essays and papers and do things because it's, it's anything on a mobile device. Um, and it wasn't handwriting, like on a bus in the old days. So I, I think that that's great. The fact it's free, that you can't overlook that because of the, the huge difference in funding for schools depending on where you are in the country or the world. Um, anytime you can make things free, it's great. Still one of the biggest hindrances, and I say this lovingly, is tech directors. 
not opening things up. So we're going to give you Google Apps for Education, but we're going to lock down Google Hangouts, or we're going to lock down the App Store, because we don't trust you to install something that can't really hurt anything. So there's still that control piece there that I worry about. Uh, but the, the amount of writing and the amount of product that students create in the districts I see with it, it's, it's overwhelmingly winning me over to the platform. Very cool. Mike Pennington at BLC. Where can people find you or blog your blog or website or where are you exist? Where aren't I? No, uh, Twitter. I'm a huge uh, Twitter person. I'm at Professor Mike One, the number one. Um, uh, Website-wise, Teachers for Tomorrow, F-O-R, teachersfortomorrow.net is my professional blog that myself and Garth Holman, who I co-taught which with for the last seven years between two school districts, about 30 miles apart. Uh, we have kept a running tally of our career on there, so we still keep things going. I know you're looking at me. I'm opening a whole can of worms of the things I've done. So that's, so Teachers for Tomorrow, and that's really where I've, I've collected all the professional stuff. Mike, I know you from originally from um, the Wiki Project, and I think that's the guy that you were, you were mentioning. And, you know, Wiki, the, the whole idea of crowdsourcing all your knowledge, of this dispersed knowledge, and everybody puts their, their um, knowledge all together to create this greater thing. Is this at all connected to your ideas about EdCamp and unconference models, or do they sort of happen as separate entities? I think they happen separately, but I think they're very related to each other. I don't think that I would have probably grasped onto EdCamp as quickly as I did if it wasn't for the crowdsourcing that was happening in my classroom. Uh, so the, the wiki book, uh, which you made mention of, our students over the last seven years at Chardon Schools and at Beechwood uh, created uh, an interactive, well, an online digital textbook, world history textbook. Um, we never did points or credit. It was, it was basically kind of the last four weeks of school. The students would sit down, collect their best work, decide how they wanted to do projects, nominate uh, each other's work to be put onto certain pages. Uh, and it really just started as a way to, to, to recap the year. Uh, but then students started asking questions like, well, can we interview an expert or an author or other people? Uh, and so Garth and I took to Twitter and to our professional learning networks, and we would contact college professors. We would contact other teachers around the country, and our students would then uh, videotape those interviews, put them up on the book, or learn extra knowledge from those people. Uh, seventh grade world history, it was like 10,000 years of history. So there, there was no way for me to be an expert in the entire curriculum. So that's where the crowdsourcing piece came from. So in EdCamp, what, what does it offer in a, in a PD for teachers that normal PD doesn't offer? And then I guess the opposite question would be, where does it fall short? Like what does it not offer for an institution? Good questions. One of the, the most unique things about EdCamp is that the people that show up that morning design the schedule. So as an organi organizer of an EdCamp, uh, I found a space uh, which was usually a school district, a local school district. We decided which classrooms we were going to use and then how many total sessions we were going to have. So we would run either three or four sessions throughout the day of about an hour in length. Um, the participants, the teachers would come in in the morning. There'd be a link to a Google spreadsheet up on a board somewhere. Um, and then by following that link, teachers could type in a topic that they enjoyed or that wanted they wanted to learn more about, either facilitate or, or talk about uh, and then myself and my staff would put those into the different classrooms. So we would kind of build the schedule while we were doing our keynote or introduction. Um, teachers are allowed to free range. I mean, if you go to a room and it's not what you want, it's called voting with your feet. You're supposed to get up and go somewhere else where you can be, you know, valuable. So you don't have that stigma of 
how do I leave this room? I'm stuck here for the next hour to two hours, which happens uh, the way that we title things a lot and try to get people to draw in. So it's really great because the teachers can take what's on their plate right then and there as a teacher and design a room where they can talk about it with other teachers. The big shortcoming is it's hard to get people to understand that when they walk in the door. Because uh, you're used to going to work sessions and conferences and having, you know, a 15-page manual of what's going on in every room. So this kind of um, off-the-do-it-as-you-go style, not exactly always easy, at least for teachers up here in Ohio, to grasp. Because teachers tend to be very organized, rigid people. Like Sunday night, you know what you're doing the next Friday in class. Um, so it, it, it could, can be difficult to break those barriers. Uh, my colleagues and I would always have a few session ideas in our head so we could add those into the list if the teachers were kind of slow on the uptake. Um, by lunchtime, when they eat together, the afternoon sessions were always way more than we could handle. It seems once they got into it for half a day, um, they, they really took off with the idea. I've been to a few of these things, and um, I think the first one I went to was Hackhead before ISTE. And of course, people are like ISTE, and they're just supercharged to get talking about things. I couldn't believe how much I pulled out of an hour, two hours of EdCamp compared to the rest of the conference. And that, that simple state of mind of, of just sitting in a circle and nothing happens unless you actually produce it. You can't do it passively, just that something won't work. Um, I'm, I'm asking about like EdCamps that are kind of guided. Because I've heard that some EdCamps, like we did one here to practice a few weeks ago, and it was totally open. But I've heard that you know you'll have like a ed tech ed camp or ed camps with specific topics. What are your what are your feelings about the success of those? Um, regionally here, I, th I think the closest thing I have to compare to is we have a few school districts. So in Ohio, uh, you can have something we call waiver days up here. So it's days the students don't come to work, but they're required to be here. So it's a professional development day, uh, and some districts have started to toy around with using that day as an ed camp. Their teachers come in, they create those sessions. Because there is a fear amongst administrators, and I say this as an administrator, that your teachers aren't going to maybe utilize that workday as well as they should, especially when it's 80 degrees and sunny out and they have papers to grade and other things to do. Uh, certain districts have started to say, okay, it, it's going to be an ed camp, but we're focusing on technology integration. So design or choose rooms or topics that are going to be specific to that we're using our devices. Uh, or they might say, you know, this is a curriculum day. Let's talk about writing across different um, classes. So I want social studies teachers to try to think about ways to integrate science and things like that. So sometimes it becomes almost, almost forced collaboration, which I think you start to get away from that essence of what an end camp is. So I, I'm constantly going back and forth as to how you balance those two things. How do you balance all this teacher choice and how do you balance having a structure to make sure that things uh, get done throughout the course of your of your waiver day? Um, the, the two ed camps we've run here, the two ed camp Cleveland's, have gone fabulous. Um, we've we've probably we've we've grown each year. I think we've done it five years. I, I was involved the last two years as an organizer, uh, and we've steadily approached 200, 250 people as we go. So, and the first one was about seventy. So it, it's kind of caught caught wings. I think one of the big things that always hurts us is it's on a Saturday usually, uh, and it's in the spring. And you guys don't have an Ohio winter to do, deal with, but in the spring around here, you, you really want to be outside on a Saturday. So that that's a, a challenge. Mm. 
Um, what about continuity? Like what gets produced from an ed camp, what gets documented, where to go with it from there? I know a lot of the big questions we did ours was like, well, what are we really producing? And while well, I felt we produced a ton and we documented our conversations and things, any suggestions on how to build that continuity from, from ed camp to normal PD or from ed camp to ed camp? That's tough. So what we tried to do this last year with our ed camp was uh, we created almost like a listserv via Google, so a Google group uh, where we could continue to share things out. Um, we created some folders in Google Drive so that people could upload and keep their submissions there. Uh, we tried to link things back to that original spreadsheet that they used for the, the course of the day so that we had a topical way of, of finding files. But I, I don't think it was that successful. I think it was successful up summer break. So we probably had about two months where teachers were back in and engaged with that. The biggest, the biggest outcome we found from surveying people from ed camps was their connections they made via Twitter. Um, a lot of teachers, even though we all teach locally, we're all Northeast Ohio teachers for the most part, nobody knows what, who's doing what in other districts. I mean, even if the other district's 10 miles down the road. Uh, so using those social media platforms to connect people, I think, was huge. There was a lot of phone numbers exchanged, a lot of Twitter handles, like I said, exchanged. Uh, mm. uh, just went that's, off and did their own thing. Uh, very applicable just within our school where, you know, we're trying to leverage vertical conversations, horizontal conversations. Sometimes we all get so silent into our own area that those conversations often don't happen or they only happen like for five minutes at the snack bar, that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to chew and talk. Do you, uh, it, like, as administrator, um, what about PD credit? Like, do you guys give credit for these ed camps? Is there some way to tie it into, you know, professional development hours, or is it always a volunteer thing? Um, we always, when we did ours, we would give them a certificate that said they were there for 6.5 hours, hours is, and, and that in Ohio, for the way our teaching licenses work, uh, work towards, let me think, they're called ECUs. So it's not a college course credit, but the credits towards renewing your teaching license. Uh, so every five years in Ohio, you have to have a certain amount of those continuing ed credits or college credits to, to continue to teach. Uh, so that's a nice thing because it's it's pretty easy and free. We don't have to pay a college to, to say we're giving you a credit for this or not. Uh, some ed camps do that. They'll partner with a local college. Uh, and if you show up and pay, they usually give you a reduced date and you can get a credit or two for that day's worth of work. Uh, it's hard because a lot of the colleges, they want to see some kind of paper or some type of really made set agenda before they're willing to give credits out for something. Uh, and that's just the disconnect, I think, from how secondary education and post-secondary education have been evolving. Uh, colleges, and maybe I'm biased, college is way slower <laughs> to change or to at least embrace the idea of changing. Uh, and I say that as someone who's taught teaching methodology classes at four local colleges in Ohio. And, and I look at what the curriculum is and then I come in and say, well, this is what I want the curriculum to be. And it, it's usually a battle. So I just go back to the old syllabus, but teach what I was going to teach anyways. Um, and, and that's, I think ed camps are getting that same that same push. And I think as, as schools start to do it internally uh, and as more people start to go to regional ed camps, we're going to see a transition. Ohio in February has their state technology conference in Columbus. And four or five years ago, some of my friends actually started what they call OETC acts. So they started doing an unconference in conference. 
uh, and we just took over a hallway and we would bring our own data projector and a screen and just start talking about stuff and people walking by would just stop and join us uh, to the point where two years ago the Columbus the the people that organized the conference said we want you to be an actual part of this uh, and they embraced it and they gave us space and rooms uh, and last year there'll probably be about eh, 3,000 people I think that go to the state tech conference and, and we had close to five or six hundred that kind of registered for our free portion within there so people are starting to see that and, and the state tech conference I mean there's like a thousand different places you can go in three in two days so that overwhelms people but when you get five or six or ten experts that they know from Ohio they come to see us I mean it's it's a little bit more laid back and, and you get to have a little bit more fun We attempted our first ed camp at Impact Hub in Bogota. Ten people showed up, but that is probably how it should start, small and intense. We gathered around one projector and took turns moderating discussion for three and a half hours. Anyone getting up at 7 a.m. on Saturday in Bogota to come and talk about teaching and learning arrives with an idea and passion. Here, Austin Levinson and Juan Daza review ed camp. Then we close with an excerpt from EdCamp's founder, Hadley Ferguson, in her interview with EdSurge. So here we are at my recess duty on the fields. So the background noise you hear is children wildly at play, one of the building blocks of academic thinking and construction. Meanwhile, we had last weekend an EdCamp, which is kind of like an adult form of play, um, and where we all got together, 10 of us got together in a room, spent about three and a half hours just madly discussing different topics in education. We used a computer to kind of put images up to get focal points for conversation, and it was a pretty mad, um, extreme exchange of ideas. Austin is here with me, and he's going to reflect on some of his thoughts on the experience. In May, I traveled all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, from Bogota, Colombia, to a Project Zero conference, and I was in an auditorium with about 800 people that I felt were my tribe, and I found my tribe in the world, that I'm not alone with some of my um, progressive educational ideas and philosophies, and on Saturday I had the chance to go just to Chapinero here in Bogota, um, a few minutes down the road, and find my tribe here in Bogota, and I really feel that I'm not alone and I felt solidarity and I felt that together we can conquer the world and I felt that some of the people that were there, the, the interplay between the people that were there, um, my ideas, others' ideas, the, the interplay between different um, factions within that was simply stimulating and it's something that I really hope We'll have many more opportunities to do so, and I will cherish the opportunity to have more amazing conversations like the ones like the one we had. Uh, the uh, the The visuals I think did help to provide an extra dimension to the conversation. But frankly, there were enough people, even with a small group, there were enough people there with different ideas and some similarities in their thinking, with different points of view, different resources that there was more than enough to go on for a three-and-a-half-hour conversation among just a handful of people, which I find pretty powerful. It's an experience that I would really hope to repeat in the near future and many times. I have uh, several pages worth of notes, which I've yet to 
pour through and look for some of those links and resources, I know that I will have um, some gems in there that will serve me in different areas of both professional and personal life. One of the things I found pretty fascinating as Austin was talking about was the um, convergence of thought over different areas. So, for example, we had a financial advisor who got pretty philosophical on what he did and said he's basically training people to think of their life, not just in moments and activities, but over longer periods of time. Meanwhile, I'm working with a student who just passed me on the playground who has um, been playing Age of Civilizations on the side, but he's also studying um, five different indigenous groups and he's designing his own game using the five tribes. Um, changing the rules and even to how the game is played. So his his idea is to change the objective of the game to be more of kind of an environmental, um, sustained living, how you're using your environment, why some groups were able to exist in the same area for 800 years, why some groups had to roam from place to place, and how they interacted with their environment. So this kind of long-term thinking you know, was, was a kind of a common thing that we're both training. Um, another thing was problem solving and, and how to, to build in a culture of collaboration, but also a culture of you're not just going to work doing these problem solving activities kind of in moments, but you're working over longer periods. So that um, I think he was working with the Scrum model, which is kind of a precursor to design thinking. But it builds just incredible kind of problem solving narrative to trying to change things and at the same time learn at the same time. So these kind of discussions, to me, were some of the most fascinating parts, is that everyone sort of found the bridging points between the areas of work they were in, and they were fascinated that educators in classrooms with second graders were thinking along these same terms. And I think that we were, we were only a few groups represented, but to have some different age groups, some people from outside of the field of education, at least in its traditional sense, uh, I think that it, it did add a great dynamic to the conversation. I think we have um, some, some work to do to try to bring a wider range of people from different areas in because I think that education is a commonality to all people. And I think that everyone can add something to that conversation. I know that uh, the, the work here in Colombia in particular, um, I think we have a, a challenge not too unlike the challenge in the United States in which we're trying to get the people making large-scale decisions for a majority of the population to actually think of those members of the population and not of predominantly themselves or certain buddy-buddy uh, networks. And here in Colombia, some similar things are going on. And so I think that um, getting to a place where we can um, have the decision-making be based upon what's best for the students and best for the children I think that that's an important goal for all of us and how we're going to get there. How can we use social media? How can we break down the hegemony? How can we take the people in charge making decisions for their own financial self-interests? How can we take some of the decision-making either away from them or how can we somehow uh, influence them to make decisions for the better interest of the majority, I think is an important question. So that's basically what we walked away with EdCamp, is the idea that this is an affinity space. You don't, no one would show up to EdCamp unless they're a pretty impassioned educator or someone interested in, in change, in social change and learning. Um, and the immediate response as we're walking out was everyone was saying, let's grab three people each and let's have the next one. So I think that's what our, our next plan is to sometime in the next six weeks try to um, host another EdCamp. And here in Colombia, where most of the people have... Um, 
Spanish names. I think we need to find someone named Eduardo to join us. Okay, thanks, Austin. First death camp for me was a surprise because somehow I found that, um, for starters, the topic is gaining momentum here in Bogota, so I guess that's a good thing. Gaining momentum means that it starts slow because you have this bell of innovation, so the first ones are a real small group, so we don't have to worry about that. So I think that it could be more politicized, somehow make a little bit more noise so people can can see it or find it out. So I guess that's one thing to work on. And I'm sure if we all add our networks, it will be a little bit better for the next time, for the second edition. And um, I think the thing I liked the most was that the people that were in this first session, they were really concerned about some topics that I thought that were not in my closest radar. Like somehow they were just topics of my own and somehow I felt that there were not enough community or enough people interested in that kind of topics. So um, it was really nice to see that first, you're not alone. And second, that that uh, the tribe is just starting. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. The first, I hadn't been to a lot of big conferences, and most of my experiences going to educa education conferences were pretty so-so eh, to negative. Like, mm -hmm. I just didn't walk away with a whole lot. And then I went to my first like ISTE conference, and they start off with this hackhead thing, which I've mentioned several times in the podcast. But it was just amazing, at, like how energized everyone was to be there at the actual event. Nobody shows up to these things unless they really have a passion or a drive in education. And so I think that was part of just like all of these feelings and thoughts that I had about education, all of a sudden there were these bouncing boards, like people who were talking and thinking about some of the same things. And so that idea of like this collaborative learning environment, and I think that's where EdCamp's strengths are the most, and I think that it's not talked about a whole lot because they're so successful, I think we get lost in the hype of just everyone's going to these EdCamps, but I think what's happening behind the scenes is that like nobody would show up to that thing unless they want, and it promotes this kind of agency where nothing's going to happen in that space unless you make it happen. Our, our first ed camp was 10 people. I mean, it was really small. Like, we didn't even break into different groups. We basically just put a laptop and a projector in the front of the room, and everyone kind of took turns walking up, whatever they were talking about. If they had a visual piece or a link or something, they would throw it up there as a talking piece. And I think three hours went by, and we were just, like, immersed in discussion. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, was amazing. And that's basically what I wanted to walk out of, of an event like that, not so much the numbers, that would be cool too, but sort of get everyone feeling what the experience is about. So then when they know to pick people to come to the next one, they know they're not going to bring people who wouldn't be engaged in that kind of environment. Um, some of the big surprises for me were the overlap from education to private sector to finance, that it was so easy to find this common ground to talk to. Yeah. You know, we had this guy that was there as a financial advisor, uh -huh. but the common talking point was promoting long-term thinking and how we do that in a learning trajectory and how he tries to do that with people's finances you know, as they're, as they're planning. This idea of the healthiest learning environment is getting kids really deep into things and where things connect over long periods of time, like in projects or, or longer kind of unit themes. Um, what were your thoughts on kind of that part? I know that in Colombia right now, the topic of teaching kids how to manage finance 
and manage money and to think money likewise is something new. There's a bank who has been behind that kind of idea. It's a very big bank. It's called Bank Colombia. And they have been uh, researching. In fact, they, they hired a, a group uh, a couple of years ago called Qualificar, who made the whole uh, curriculum uh, experiments. And they, they even, they had a, a couple of pilots where it worked really well. And what happened is that very authentic uh, yeah, like background that. sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in situ, that's, that's cool. And what happened is that um, the experiment went really well. So somehow a topic that was, I believe, uh, hidden or maybe sleeping just woke up and, and it was a main thing to do. So this guy, I think he was really interesting in, in following up that kind of, uh, of trend. Mm. And... But what really connected with him was the idea of turning that into some sort of entrepreneurial um, movement or something that he could work on. Like, let's give kids the idea of building projects that could become financially stable or could be some sort of a, a working environment. I've seen also experiments like that in different countries, and it seems to be a, a nice and a good track or good place to start. I don't know if the doing to earn is the right objective, but I guess it's, it's something that, that happens in a lot of projects because you see that somehow the goal of the project is to be financially stable or to make money. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the, the spirit of a project that I wish to, to connect a kid with. Well, I think that's connected to the EdCamp idea is a lot of the confusion around why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people, if they're going to go to a half-day event, they want to see a product or what am I going to walk away with? Whereas I think what EdCamp's really driving at, or for me the greatest takeaways are that feeling of connectivity, yeah. of getting your ideas out there and mixing with others and the networking part of, you know, you have this idea and you need to bounce it off someone. Well, now you know someone that you, can, you could actually do that with. Um, And so those are kind of the real strengths, not so much we produce this document or, the, or this work. I think those would be more like longer time things we wouldn't even call ed camps. We'd call think tanks or something like that. <laughs> so I feel like ed camp is sort of like the mini think tank. Mm -hmm. Like it's just a place to go and rapidly get your ideas out there as quickly as possible. And to me, it comes from the hallway conversation and the conferences. You know, like, like where the rapid exchanges are really going on mm. is in the hallways and the meeting areas. And yes, of course, the conference part's important, but it's such a passive experience. I think we're getting better at that with modern technologies, with back channels and stuff. But for the most part, it's, it's that you know, you're in a circle of people, and what you're going to experience in the next 30 to 45 minutes is going to be more rapid fire than pretty much anything else you could, you could set up. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think that's been one of the real strengths. Where I would like to see it grow is kind of what you're saying is like, this is our first prototype. We step back. We review. And now I think we're really to spread, like we were hoping that just by word of mouth, by our networks, by posting on Facebook, that this thing would um, bring in enough wave. And I think a lot of people, it's a Saturday morning thing, and so you have to be pretty dedicated to get up at that time and then come spend half the day. Plus, a lot of people don't really know what it is. Personally, when I first heard the name Ed Camp, just the fact that it had camp on it, it sounded like an adult camp where you're going to go like... You know, go through some kind of growth. Um, <laughs> that's not what we were trying to promote at all. We just used the name EdCamp because that's what it's been branded in the States. But I guess unconference would be what it really comes from. Yeah. And I'm not sure where the unconference model comes from, but 
I think, you know, probably in the areas you work at, design thinking kind of areas, um, that sort of collaboration model, I think it comes from a lot of that. Like, yeah, that's let's, true. Let's get as much... Open as many, space. As many open space, as many different heads in the room as possible, mm-hmm. and then let's start finding that common ground. Yeah, as a, as a coach in Agile, I found very difficult to approach companies that have some sort of management style. And somehow this management style, it's more like a pyramid. You can see that in schools right away. It's like the same structure. There's a head, headmaster or rector or someone who is in front of the school. And there's a second level and a third level and a fourth level and, and so on and so forth. So my, my intention of seeing the EdCamp was, am I going to find eventually an education organization where the pyramid is inverted? <clears throat> well, I mean, I think that's happening all over the place. We just talked to Margaret Powers uh-huh. an hour ago, and one of the things that she was promoting a year or so ago after South by Southwest was this, this idea of these you no know, innovative positions within schools where your time is split between many different sectors and maybe you have different positions that overlap. And usually they take these fancy titles like Officer of Innovation and Thought and things yeah. like that. So I think people are playing around with that. I think schools are, are definitely you know, old, old school institutions. Yeah. And I think it would, at this point we're, we're basically, you, know, you need to have a sort of innovative director or an innovative board of directors. So if you look at our school, like I, I think most of our board of directors are education-based, but they're also very business-based. And so of they, they have that innovative model of you know, we do want things to move and happen here. Um, and so, you know, that's always an internal struggle, especially at an institution this big. You know, there are innovative spaces, there are innovative teachers, but sort of getting that critical mass to pick up and move, um, that, that can be a difficult thing. There are, there are schools with no directors. I mean, mm-hmm. a school in New York that, that actually has no hierarchy. Wow. Everyone just goes and, you know, they vehemently defend that model. But I think those are few and far between at this point. I think most schools are very hierarchical based. Um, if you look at John Maida at Rhode Island School of Design, yeah. who also comes out of the MIT lab, and we were just talking about Mitch Resnick right before we started. Um, you know, his model, if you look, he has a book called Redesigning Leadership, and it's all about these kind of fluid leaderships where there are still leaders, of course. Someone has to provide guidance, someone has to provide inspiration. Ambition. But I think what it's moving more towards now is this radical collaboration model where the real leader is going to be the person who can get all these people in the room to collaborate and get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's going to be, you know, we have all the things in place. We have collaboration time. Teachers have planning time. But it's still very much a mandate. It's still very much like a dictated thing. In this segment of time, you will do this and you will come to decisions about this. Whereas I think the more you can push teachers into that model of agency, the more you're going to see leadership popping up right and left. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know we're all kind of in that period of transition, but I, I do think that's where we are moving as educational institutions. I think if you look at how people are pursuing their professional development now, most of my professional development is, is homegrown. It's done through Twitter, it's done through reading people's blogs, it's done through going to conferences and building up your own interest base about things. So, you know, I, I think the more that happens, the more we're going to see this breakdown or this transformation or whatever we want to call it, this reform of how the leadership model works. But, yeah, I mean, we still have 
we still have bosses and we still have yeah. things you have to do. And, and it's not being bad. I, I don't think the model is somehow wrong. I think it, it has to do with the stakeholder. Who is the one at the end who receives value? And I'm, I'm always trying to think about that. And in EdCamp, I saw something very interesting is that everyone had a different stakeholder in mind. Yeah, and none of those people were, they're all teachers. Yeah. I mean, everyone there was a classroom teacher of, of the education side. So no one was in a position where, you know, they had gone into admin or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, you saw the leadership roles popping up right mm -hmm. and left. And so I think that's what the future leader is, is recognizing those informal leaderships and promoting that. Because yeah. think about how much less you would have to work <laughs> if the people you're working with are running after their own, yeah. you know, their own... Self-organized and... Yeah. Now, I, I think the complications are when, when you look at something as big as like this school, um, how do you keep things standard? You know, like you've got a parent base or a stakeholder base that mm -hmm. um, it's still in some ways a business in that they're paying for a certain kind of educational product. And so that, you know, you don't want, if you have triplets or twins, you don't want them getting three different educations over the year. You want to see some consistency in, in what they're learning. So that's totally understandable. I think we're looking at more of um, how curricular goals are met and how, you know, lessons are taught. And there you'll see a lot of flexibility. And you'll see, like, we have adopted a readers and, white, a readers and writers workshop model from the TC from Columbia. And that's very dependent on the teacher uh, to interpret it correctly. I mean, it's a model. The kids will work most of the time during that model. They will either be reading or writing, producing things. And it's the teacher who has to kind of come up with the mini lessons that really spark their interest into things. So those types of education models are giant leaps and bounds from what we were trained in you know, 15, 20 years ago, where it was literally people would come in your room with a clipboard and you had to be within a time frame in your lesson trajectory by five minutes or you got, you know, marked off. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that is very much a thing of the past. Um, you know, so I think it is happening kind of under the surface. The really big changes, I think, will they're coming, I mean, yeah. in the future. But it, it seems to me it's part of this larger cultural shift of the personalization. You know, you mentioned the banking system. I mean, look how banking has changed over the last 20, 30 years. It's become from, you know, you feel so small walking into these banks to feeling like now the, the user is a really uh -huh. important, you know, part of the experience. Uh, and I think we're seeing that across the board with students. If you look at sort of, you know, there's such a push now for students to write their own driving questions and to write their own inquiry because then they're personally invested. They have a feeling about this thing they're about to do. So it is getting more of this user based, this empathy based. And I think teachers, is, it's the same way. I think if you approached teachers 15, 20 years ago, they would be expecting mandates, where now teachers are expecting to design things themselves and, and to use their own intellect. That is nothing but welcome from my, my opinion. <laughs> um, so in your work, let's close with just sort of a general question of how do you think this EdCamp model um, could be used in the private sector as well? Is this something that you see companies doing as well? or um, you know, just sort of the no planned meeting where you're just going to go and you're going to brainstorm and you're going to come up with ideas. Like, where would that fit in the private sector? I've seen it on action. It's pretty interesting. Maybe the model's not on conference straight like that, but in an open space, you can see that somehow there are some basic rules. Like, if you don't like this topic, you could just walk away and nobody's hurt. Right, that's the two, 
the two feet mm. rule. Like, just walk away if you don't like it. Um, there's also a time frame that's very useful. If you make very long conferences, that's why this model of Pecha Kucha is really interesting. I don't know if you heard mm -hmm. about it. Like a so 20 like minute 20 slides. Yeah, uh, a 20 slides. And it's very interesting because it gives you limits in order for you to try to be as effective and um, focused on the time. So that's, that's pretty interesting too. I guess that many people in working environments are just hoping not to get into three hours, two hours, or even one hour a meeting. So this is somehow effective. The thing that I like, or I, I've seen in, in many companies, and it's really interesting because I've seen it in, in the, oh, what's that sector? That's the insurance sector, mm. where you thought, oh, I, I thought it was very traditional. They have this open space idea of trying to identify your topic and really, really get into it. Love your topic with passion. Like if, if your topic is education, just research into it, make the best practices, try to make the best presentations and try to convoke or to, to create a community mm -hmm. within your organization. And that's one thing that I really like about these kind of experiments in companies because the private sector is trying to find out if there are tribes, if there are movements, if there are groups, if there are people who can gather for things besides the working environment or besides the topic of the company or mm. whatever they're gathering in, in, the, in the business. And that's one thing that I, I like because it's like they're trying to build this bridge upon your personal beliefs and passions and the place you work. It's not working always. It doesn't work out really good because sometimes many, many of the workers are still thinking of, I come here five to nine or five to eight or eight to five, sorry, and just leave because uh, they pay me and that's, that's my job. But a lot of people think that this is part of my life, so I have to at least be connected somehow. Mm -hmm. And it's a culture that's coming from companies like Zappos or that kind of stories where you see that they are really engaged in some, horse, some sort of a family mm. um, environment. So I guess that many companies, or at least many organizations, believe they can get that kind of place. And the way of getting there is by promoting this model of unconferences. Yeah, I was just listening to <laughs> TED Talk. <clears throat> this morning on the way to work and the whole theme is like why do we work and so the first segment's about the super chickens and it talks about like they separated these like very dominant alpha chickens and they put them into one category and they put the other chickens that were more docile into another category and then of course the measurement is how many eggs they lay uh -huh. and so the, the passive chickens are just laying eggs all over the place and the super chickens all pecked each other to death and so you know this is like what our businesses have been based on this this hyper competitivity you know, competitiveness um And saw another article just coinciding with that, of like, when teachers compete, everybody loses, is the name of the article in Edutopia. And it just talks about, like, environments where teachers are encouraged to compete against one another are usually the most failing of the education mm. environments. Like, there has to be this understanding and collaborative model between teachers. Otherwise, they don't really get anywhere. So I think this is something that, you know, people look for in their work, is the relationship and the feeling around the work the feeling of connectivity is super important. 
But if you're not given this opportunity to build those sort of affinity spaces, then you know everyone's kind of in their silo kind of thinking, mm -hmm. and it, I think it makes you just ten times less productive in the long run. I'm going to Uruguay the next week, the 21st, and we're meeting with the whole community of Latin America agile workers, and so it's a it's a huge gathering, like 300 people. In in Medellin was like 700 people, so this one's pretty much big, but it's in the standard, right? Mm. And I'm I'm speaking uh, I'm as a speaker in a conference that I built upon one idea that I've been working a lot is that somehow the working environment, even if you work in education or not, you are really eager to find another currency besides your profession. Mm. Like I don't want in, in your case. I'm already identifying Chris as someone who has a passion on communications and uh, science communications or mm. right like podcasting thing and I I believe that that has to be your new currency like for the next time if I'm trying to build a radio show the first one who will come to my mind will be Chris because somehow he has shared his new currency with me mm. and that's a talent that's a skill in communications because you have somehow work on that field. It's kind of like the currency of creativity. That yeah. You look for people now that they <coughs> don't just do one thing. And, and it's very, um, what's, what's the word? The, um, uh, like someone who uh, has a different passions that goes with them and not just only one narrow passion on work. Mm. So renaissance men. Yeah, I think that is like a, a common thread of this whole design thinking thing is like, you know, in the radical radical collaboration model and mindset that, that I've read about is you want as many different heads in the room. You uh -huh. want that artist talking with the, you know, yeah. historian talking with the lawyer. I mean, like, you want all these different experiences. You want as much of this integrative thinking to be leveraged as possible. And so people that have these experiences and passions outside the profession are more likely to be thinking somehow using those passions in the profession. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, I am a percussionist and I love to play hand drums and stuff. And it was like the first year of teaching, maybe the third month, fourth month, that I actually brought the drum into the class and we started doing language and percussion activities. So wherever you can find those kind of things to integrate that kind of diver divergent thinking that has to become kind of convergent um, makes it stronger. And so, you know, I think that's what we're looking at coming in the future is tons of problem-solving abilities that will be needed. Well, that's true. You know, all these kids that we're teaching right here, <laughs> supposedly we don't even know the jobs that they will be working. Mm -hmm. And so we can't prepare them for those jobs. We can prepare them to be extremely adaptable beings and to be able to think and solve problems both by themselves and, and with others. Um, and, you know, looking at... Colombia, I don't understand the political situation completely, but you know this is one complex place. Mm -hmm. You know what's gone on here the last 40, 50 years, um, and yet now we're sort of in this time of more you know peaceful things. Businesses have done well over the last 10 years, and so it's time to start thinking a little bit differently. Like how do we get people to work together better? Mm -hmm. How do we get segments of society that have not normally communicated with each other to have a lot more in touch with each other to solve some of these common problems like? Water, you know, is a big issue right now in Colombia, for example. So, 
I think those are the skill sets that we are working on and that we're trying to like adapt and you know, learn about as much as possible as professionals. Because if we all came to school and we just did what we're supposed to and we just kind of checked all the boxes, made sure our lesson plans were in, made sure our lessons were taught, made sure our grades were in, well, I think we're not really doing what our obligation is. And that's going to be to prepare these kids for a much different future. And to do that, you have to push yourself in your own development, meaning that you can't rely on an institution or a university. I mean, those things are important too, and you, know, you still need your degrees and things like that. But you're also going to have to be this like, person that's pushing your own learning at the same mm -hmm. time. So tying it back to EdCamp, I think that's <laughs> where you know, those types of events are fomenting that kind of training. Yeah. Like the leadership roles that pop up within those areas, um, I think will be, you know, that will be part of this currency that you're talking about. You'll need all these other softer skills um, for the coming jobs and future or whatever else. Good. Cool. Well. And, and I think that that's true of an awful lot of teachers, that they want to be the best that they can be. That's why they went into this profession, was to make what happens in their classroom the best for kids. And I think that teachers want to know um, if there are things they can do that would make it better for the learning environment in their classes. So an EdCamp qualifies as what is called an unconference, and that means that the planning doesn't happen by a bunch of organizers ahead of time take, taking in proposals, setting up charts and schedules. It happens on the day. So an EdCamp is participant-driven professional development, which means that everyone who comes can suggest a session, can ask a question. It's about learning that happens collaboratively rather than top-down. There isn't an expert in the room. We say the room is the expert. And the expertise comes as teachers talk to one another. Well, what happens at an ed camp is that teachers are giving up a, a Saturday, usually, and they're coming to a place where they want to learn and they want to help other people learn. And so the conversations grow out of that. So teachers come with their latest question, how do I teach digital literacy? Or what, can, you know, what am I going to do about STEM in my humanities classroom? And they pose those questions of each other, not expecting that anybody's going to be the expert but that everybody together will begin to work towards a better understanding of how to how to solve that problem for them. And there are lots of people who come and just want to talk about a topic that it's, you know, how am I going to deal with bullying in my classroom? Um, and as the teachers talk together, there's an energy that comes because they're recognized as professionals rather than sort of almost treated like children who we've got to hold them accountable to make sure that they learn. At an ed camp, they're treated as very, very sincere professionals who are there to enhance their practice. I think that the the traditional professional development is that teachers are walked into an auditorium, they sit down in chairs, and they're talked at all day. And any study of how people learn will tell you that that's way low on how people actually engage and grow, whether it's students or it's adults. And so what happens at an ed camp provides them with an opportunity to, to be participants in their own learning rather than just simply um, sort of supposed to be receptacles of what's coming at them. There's abs everybody is a volunteer. So of the 900 plus 
ed camps that have been held. Each ed camp probably has five to ten organizers. They're all volunteers, and so they're out there doing that, partly because they experienced the energy and passion of an ed camp, and they want to pass it on. It's really a paying-it-forward kind of movement. It's interesting because we've um, a couple of ed camps I've been to. There have been some entrepreneurs, and one of the things that I say is that they they are welcome to come if they see themselves there as listeners. If they want to understand the the challenges that teachers are experiencing, if they want to sort of interact on that level, that that's perfectly fine. If they're there as a sales pitch, then that's it's really the wrong place for them because it's it is ed camps are supposed to be about about teachers sharing and growing together. I think that there are, there are ways that entrepreneurs could just come and listen and figure out, oh my heavens, this is a challenge point for teachers. I want to make sure that I that I address that in my product, not during the ed camp, but as they take it back. question uh, doctrine, question authority, uh, uh, search for alternatives, uh, uh, use your imagination, uh, act freely under your own impulses, cooperative work with others is constant as you can see just by walking down the halls. Uh, that's in my view what uh, an educational system should be like down to kindergarten. Uh, but uh, there's uh, certainly are powerful structures in the society which would prefer people to be indoctrinated, conform, not ask too many questions, be obedient, uh, fulfill the uh, roles that are assigned to you, and don't try to shake systems of power and authority. Uh, those are choices we have to make either as stand in the educational system as students, as teachers, as people on the outside trying to help shape it in the directions in which we think it ought to go. Our next ed camp in Bogota will be in February, probably the 13th. To lead up to the event, we're hosting a series of ed cafes, one-hour ed talks and coffee shops around town, inspired by Alice Keeler's 6am coffee edu meetups before ISTE. Our next upcoming podcast, the second part of Gamification, will publish shortly. Until then, you can find us on Facebook, iTunes, or Google search Journeys in Podcasting. We'll see you then.